Hey, good morning, everybody. A um, couple things. Today is the first week of Advent. That's always fun. But in a typical reality fashion, we're going to start Advent next week. <clears throat> Today, we're going to uh, finish our series in the book of Joshua. Uh, I'm going to try to move through chapter 9 and chapter 10. Um, but so just so you know what to expect in the weeks to come, next week we'll be starting our Advent series looking at Christmas in a variety of different ways. Basically, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ and look at various ways week after week leading up to Christmas Eve at how his birth transforms our lives uh, and how it changes everything. We're going to look at all the different things that it changes uh, we might, perhaps for you, maybe you've grown up celebrating Christmas your whole life. You know that it's an, a joyous occasion. Maybe it brings family around. Maybe it brings uh, other things around that aren't, aren't so fun uh, during the, the end of the year. But maybe for you, it's hard to make that connection uh, to your spiritual life. Maybe there's a disconnect. How, how is Christmas, beyond being warm and sentimental, uh, actually change my life. And those are some of the things that I want to talk about in the weeks to come. Uh, we'll do that every Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve. And uh, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday, so we won't be meeting on Christmas Day. That's a Sunday. We will have our gathering on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock on that Saturday here. For those of you that are here, we'll have a Christmas Eve uh, gathering, and that will be kind of the apex of that Advent uh, series, but just some, some things for you to plan for. If you're around, would love to have you uh, in this room with us today, uh, excuse me, in the, in the month to come as we celebrate, and today too, I'm glad that you're here, as we celebrate the birth of our Lord and our Savior. But before we get there, we're going to close out the series, Stepping into God's Promises. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 10. If you were here last week, you remember that we were in chapter 8, so you're wondering what I did with chapter 9. Um, what I want to do is end on chapter 10, and we're just going to be reading the first 14 verses. And in order for chapter 10 to make sense, I'm going to have to summarize chapter 9 to provide a little context, so in that way we're going to get the whole thing. Um, as you're turning there... I'm just going to read the first 14 verses, but a quick note. This will help make sense of what's about to unfold. There's a neighboring country by the name of Gibeon that in a deceptive way made a peace treaty with Israel. They tricked Israel, and we're going to read that in a, in a moment. But they essentially made a peace treaty with Israel. They're now one, in a sense, a covenant relationship with Israel. So that's going to make sense as we read the first six verses, excuse me, first five verses of chapter 10. This is what the word of God says. Now, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of uh, Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, that's Canaan, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. This is the word of the Lord, and this is where we start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today that as we close out this wonderful series, the story of your faithfulness and your extravagant promises, that you would once again drill beneath the surface 
of each of our lives to convince and to persuade us of those things. And I believe your word that you are who you say you are. You do the things that you say you're going to do. You are faithful and good and sure. You're also all powerful and worthy of worship and praise. Everything that the word says about you is true. And everything that you say you're going to do, you're going to do. Lord, maybe some of us in this room struggle with that. And that's our reality. We're praying that you would change that. That in our struggle, you would meet us and you would show us the greatness of your power. And the expanse of your love and kindness for those who believe in you. For those who are feeling bedraggled and scattered and tired and worn out today. And pray that you would meet them where they're at. And you would cover them with your favor and your love and your kindness. And you'd stir up faith in us all. We praise you, Lord. Because we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And now we pray that those of us who have been fearfully and wonderfully made in your image would now turn and reflect that glory back onto you where it belongs. May you turn us rightly. May you recalibrate us. As our dear brother shared earlier, to see your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in June 23rd on 1866, a mathematician by the name of Augustus de Morgan wrote, about a first, uh, one of his first experiments that illustrated a truth of a particular theory well confirmed by practice, and that is this. Whatever can happen will happen if we make trials enough. Now, that statement that De Morgan so pithily explained would later turn into something a little bit different. And it goes like this. If anything can go wrong, it probably will. That saying was later turned into a short, pithy little statement that we like to call Murphy's Law, which I find fascinating because his name wasn't Murphy, it was De Morgan. And it seems that even in the coining of the Murphy's Law, something went wrong. Now, I don't believe in that law. I don't believe that inanimate things take on a mind of their own and are out to destroy your life but I do feel that way sometimes. And perhaps a lot of us in this room feel that way. We might not claim Murphy's Law, but we we have a deep-set fear. And perhaps it just feels that way. Perhaps it's just our reality or our perception of things. But perhaps for some of you, it was just this week. Oh, while everyone is celebrating Thanksgiving and suffering from their tryptophan highs and you're scrolling through Instagram looking at everybody's happy families, you are in, a particu- you are in a, an, an entirely different situation. Maybe for some of you, you'll go into Christmas the same way. Maybe it has nothing to do with the holidays. Maybe you just are looking for a break in life. And it's almost as if you, you've, you've gotten to the, to the precipice of your breakthrough and everything falls apart. Maybe any time it seems like God blesses you. Maybe you're going through the, the series in Joshua, God's promises, and it seems like you get to the cusp of his promises. And there's this breakthrough and the windows of heaven are opening on you and you're experiencing favor and all of these good things are happening to you. And just right when you're about to settle down, things fall apart. Whatever your experience might be, you might resonate with a statement like this. Whatever can happen, or excuse me, whatever can go wrong probably will go wrong. Maybe you're so deep in that type of narrative that you just become a cynical person. Pretty downtrodden. And you just look at things. You even look at the blessings of God. You look at the promises of people. You look at good opportunities It's just a bad thing waiting to happen. Maybe you are right now 
in a set of circumstances that are overwhelming. You have no idea how you got there. You have no idea how to get out. Do you ever feel any of these ways? Do you ever feel like Murphy's Law? If something could go wrong, since it's me, it probably will. I want you for a moment to step out of your shoes into the shoes of another, that is Joshua, who I think, I suspect, feels the same way that you and I sometimes feel. I want you to step, actually, not even in his shoes, but away from the book of Joshua for a moment with a bird's eye view to look at the places that we've been. Joshua has actually started off pretty explosive, right? There was the parting of the Red Sea. There were the promises to Joshua, his ascent to leadership. Uh, There was the the defeating of impossible armies. There was the miraculous uh, dropping of the Jericho walls. There's all this stuff happening in the first half of this narrative in Joshua. And I suspect a person like Joshua could say, yep, it happened just as God promised. Wow, this is actually easier than I thought. God is good, his promises are sure, and he would have been totally justified in saying all of those things. And then we get to chapter 7, and chapter 8, and chapter 9. Just like us. Maybe chapter 1, and 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6 were great for you, but you're right now in chapter 7, and nothing's working out. I just want to read... Verse 3 through 6 for a moment, so you can experience and resonate, perhaps, with what Joshua is going through. It says, on the heels of, the, uh, uh, of Gibeon making this treaty, that Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, this is one of the earlier parts in the Old Testament where the city of Jerusalem comes up. It actually turns up in Genesis with the king of uh, 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 Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, Jerusalem. And we see the roots of this tremendous and beautiful and historic city already being tied to the nation of Israel. This is why it's so important today. Jerusalem goes all the way back to some of these first books. But here it is, right in verse 3, that the king of Jerusalem sends to the king of Hebron and the king of Jarmuth and to the king of Lachish and to the king of Eglon. Five kings, five cities, five uh, five armies. And he says in verse 4, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, that is Canaan, all get together with the king of Jerusalem. All of them begin to make war and encamp around Gibeon in order to destroy it. Now, here's here's why all of this matters. What happens in Joshua chapter 9 is a pretty awkward uh, connection between Gibeon and the nation of Israel. Just a, a little recap that God has told Israel to take over a certain amount of land because he has given it to them. Now we talked about this at length in Joshua chapter 6, if you want to revisit that or if you have questions. Uh, But this wasn't a genocide. This wasn't an ethnic cleansing. This wasn't a mass uh, devastation of millions of innocent people. These were military outposts like Jericho. And these were Canaanites who had been in rebellion against God for centuries. God actually asks them, he tells them to repent all the way back in Genesis, gives them over five centuries to repent. So we don't have this God who is just bent on destroying people. We have a God who must judge sin and evil, and yet he is also long-suffering and patient. He's waited five centuries for these nations, these countries to repent. But as Genesis tells us, God will not strive with man forever. There must come a point of judgment, and this is what we see. This is judgment. And one of those countries that is about to be judged, Gibeon, actually sparks a plan. I guess they could have just repented and said, we give up. We're sorry for our sin. But instead, they, they enact a plan, and I just want to read, read that for you uh, in chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. It says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, 
They, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made uh, ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to them and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. You see what they're doing? Hey, we're not in the land that God gave to you. We're actually uh, far-off travelers. We're from the other side of the world. We're not a part of this dispute that you have with the Canaanites. We're just visiting. Can we be in covenant with you? So they come with a sense of, uh, of cunning. Now, in verse 14, look at this. Once again, Joshua has the opportunity to ask God in prayer what to do. But in verse 14, it says that the men of Israel took some of Gibeon's provisions and did not ask counsel from the Lord. Again, this happens. And in verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So here's what's happening. Gibeon, which is a sworn enemy, is now in covenant with Israel. Unless you know what a covenant is, this makes no sense to you. We don't really have relationships in our modern vernacular that have that type of bond that covenants do. Perhaps you've been in a friendship with someone who left you as soon as you were able to help them. In Southern California, think of churches. In, uh, in, Southern, in Santa Barbara, Southern California in general, there's, you know, what we, we've actually came up with a term called church hopping. If things don't match what I want in the church, I will move on to the other one. We see it in churches. We see it in corporations. We see it in businesses. We see it in friendships. We see it in families where we view relationships as something that exists to give us something. And once that, that kind of resource is cut off, we don't need that other person. But a covenant, as we've been talking about at length throughout these chapters, is something far deeper. A covenant, a covenant in the Bible is a mixture of love and expectation. I love you enough to give you everything, but I also expect healthy expectations from you. And so there's this unbreakable bond So much so that Joshua, who is about to destroy Gibeon, is now in a covenant with them. And that means this. Not only does everything that we have belong to you, but anyone who comes after you, we will risk our lives to fight. So an enemy just turned into a friend. Reluctant. Reluctant friend. But this is is how uh, covenants work. They didn't ask counsel from the Lord or he would have told them. Gibeon Gibeon kind of whisks their way in by an act of cunning. But here's the beauty of all of this is that God accepts Gibeon. They're now God's people. I love this. Even until the last throes of judgment, God is willing to accept anyone that repents. Rahab earlier was a Canaanite who risked her life to show... uh, her faith in God. Over here we have a less noble example, but God is willing until the last minute to accept anyone that is willing to throw down their weapons and worship him. Gibeon is no different. But as a result of this, and where we find ourselves in chapter 10, is that the king of Jerusalem feared greatly, verse two, because Gibeon was a huge, great city. It was a royal city with a lot of might. So for them to be afraid of Israel kind of means something. It kind of says something, not really about Israel, but about Israel's God. And so so the five kings gather their forces in verse 5 and surround not Israel, but Gibeon. Now here's where the plot thickens, because Israel ordinarily wouldn't have any bone in this fight. But now they're being dragged into a war by Gibeon because that's their covenant partner. Can you imagine what Joshua is going through right now? He just fought two battles. One of them he lost. Now he's being drugged into another battle that isn't even his, but he got obligated into because of his own rebellious nature and lack of, ask, uh, uh, lack of asking God for counsel. So the scene here is a large nation tricking them into being included. Five kings with their five armies gathered around, ready for war. And we see right here in verse six, 
And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Don't relax your hand from your servants. Come to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. No sooner did they make this accidental covenant than it's time to back it up with swords. So Joshua, verse 7, went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. I just want to stop at this first point. When our circumstances are overwhelming, perhaps you feel like your circumstances are overwhelming. Certainly we could resonate with a person like Joshua. Look at what he's dealing with. Deception, hostility, war, being outnumbered on every side. Before any of this ever happened, you remember the betrayal of Achan, who brought the curse of God down on the nation because he took things that he wasn't supposed to. Out of that, 36 Israelites died. They lost a war. They were humiliated. They failed. Deception, hostility, being outnumbered, being betrayed, failure, humiliation. This is how Joshua starts first part of chapter 10. What do you do when your circumstances are overwhelming? What do you do when your only way of explaining what's happening around you is some silly theory that everything that could go wrong will go wrong? Look at what Joshua does in verses 8 through 11. He simply remembers God's favor. If there's a single line in all of this chapter that I would hope that you would remember, it's this, remembering God's favor. Look at verse eight. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. Verse 11. And they fled before Israel. While they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, listen to this, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them. As far as Azekah, yeah, that actually happened. And they, and they died. Big, rock, big stones. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. I know this can be hard to read because this is war and all that, that entails. If you're struggling uh, with this, listen to the sermon on Joshua chapter 6. But at the end of the day, this is about God's promises and his faithfulness and his justice and his righteousness. And what we see in this particular sentence is this incredible thing where God fights on behalf of his people. He does more in this battle than all of Israel combined. The author of Joshua is careful to make note of this. First of all, not only does he throw throw the enemy into a complete panic, he says in verse 8, right, he gives this promise. Joshua is filled with promises. The first one here is, Joshua, do not fear. Do not fear deception. Do not uh, fear other people's hostility. You can make this your own promise. This is for you as well. Do not fear that you are outnumbered. Do not fear that you seem to have more enemies than you have friends. Do not fear acts of betrayal. Do not fear failing tomorrow morning. Do not fear uh, humiliation, shame, and guilt. Why? I have given them into your hands. And God is the type of person who doesn't just tell you that he's going to do something. He puts his money where his mouth is. Amen? How does, how does he do that with, uh, with this particular promise? I have given them into your hands. Well, in verse 10, he actually throws the enemy into a panic. I don't even know how that looks or what he does. I can just imagine it. As war is ensuing, the enemy just, just is thrown into complete and utter panic. Perhaps they're turning on each other. Perhaps they were wearing the wrong jerseys and they don't know who's an enemy or who's a friend. I don't know what happened. But they're not functioning. God is actually thwarting the power of the enemy in this situation. He doesn't just stop there. Look at verse 11. God 
begins to throw down large stones. It's hailing, but it's not hailing the way that we understand hail, the one time every 10 years that we get it, and it's this big. It's actually fatal. He's destroying whole armies because of the hail. You have to stop and read this and just be, just be in awe that things like this actually happened. God is showing his great and miraculous power. And I think underlying that, he is showing how much he cares for his people. Elsewhere, I think it's in the book of Chronicles where he says, uh, I think it's to Hezekiah, you do not need to fight this battle, but stand guard. I will fight on behalf of you. Just kick back and watch salvation being brought to you. This is the same type of thing we see here. The author even makes a note of it. Hey, God actually did more in this battle than all of Israel combined with swords. Now, I want you to stop for a moment. Here's what, here's what I want us to bring out of this battle. I want you to think back upon the previous chapters where the same nation of Israel fought the same, a, a similar group of people in a similar battlefield with similar weapons in a similar situation. And yet they lost that battle with I. And they're now winning this battle with five times the enemy facing them. I want you to ask yourself, what's the difference between this battle and the one that Israel lost in previous weeks? It's the same group of people. And mind you, this is not an, Israel is not a, a, a force to be reckoned with at this point. They're not a world-conquering empire. These are former slaves wearing the same clothes that they just left town with, armed with, I don't know, farming tools and maybe a sword or two. These are not mighty warriors. These are peasants who have only known slavery their entire life, a generation coming from a generation of slaves. They don't know how to fight. And yet they are completely annihilating five different armies and making a mockery of them. What's the difference? The difference between this battle and the one at Ai where Israel lost is simple. It hadn't to do with their weapons, had nothing to do with them, had nothing even to do with their enemy. The difference in battle was simply the favor of God. That's the only change. The favor of God. In fact, we don't just see this changing things for Joshua and the nation of Israel here. We see it all over the Bible. We see it in the person of Noah, in whom it said Noah found favor with God. And because of that favor, he was rescued out of judgment in the flood, him and his whole family. We see it in Moses, who found favor with God and was pulled out of Egypt only to then be sent back to Egypt on mission to rescue God's people out of slavery. We see it in the women Hannah, uh, for example, the mother of Samuel, who was, uh, it was said of found favor with God, and to, uh, to her was given birth of this son who would later speak truth as a prophet in Israel to a wayward nation. We see it in Mary, the mother of Jesus, of whom she was called the most favored one by an angel. We see it in King David, in whom was found favor by God, who had a heart after God. We see it in consecutive men and women who were used mightily, even though they came from meager places and small means. They were lifted up by God because his favor was upon them. We don't just see it in individual people. We see it over groups of people. We see it over the whole nation of Israel who found favor with God. A beautiful uh, verse that expresses this is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm just going to read this, where we see God's favor on the nation of Israel. And it says in verse 6, listen to this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Do you hear it right there? That is the favor of God. I have chosen you. Ephesians chapter 1 will later say that of all of God's people. God has chosen you. That is God's favor. You've been brought into adoption even though you have nothing to offer inherently out of your own. Lest we think that Israel somehow did something to appear better to God or perhaps had something that they could offer to God or perhaps were so numerous that they could have been useful to God, God is careful to say in verse 7 in Deuteronomy, now it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of the people. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to, his fa- to your fathers. God chooses people out of bondage. Not because they are more numerous or more useful or more righteous. Not because he's seeing into the future and can see, yeah, I could really use them for the kingdom of God. Not because you've gotten your life together. Not because you are doing something now or you'll do something later that will change God's mind about you. You have done nothing to deserve God's favor. God puts his favor on people simply because he loves. Favor flows out of the heart of God because that is who he is. He loves people who don't deserve it. And he created you in his image. He created you for the purpose of being loved by himself. And that you have stirred yourself in a different direction and have stiff-armed the grace of God, and have rebelled against him, and have chosen a variety of different options over him, does not change God's love for you. Just as it was in Deuteronomy chapter 7, so it is now. God loves people. Even when they don't deserve it. You say, what is the effect of God's favor? Well, I think... The Apostle Paul would put it better than anybody in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Pretty sure that's what Joshua is thinking right now. And I'm thinking maybe that's what some of you need to be thinking right now. Because you might be experiencing a lot of opposition. It might be people, it might be circumstances. Maybe you're thinking, I just need a break. And Paul and Joshua and everybody in between would remind you, God's favor is upon you if you're in Christ. We kind of intuitively know the power of favor and of love and of a warm embrace because this type of love and acceptance, it's just universally known that love and acceptance is needed for basic human development, right? You can see this. You can see it. For example, in a child that has been embraced or touched as a baby, held, loved, spoken to, talked to, versus one that has never been touched. The heartbreak and the difference between those two that never leaves even into adulthood. Or... For someone who has never been loved or never been embraced, never been hugged, never been accepted, the difference for an adult to say to that adult, I love you. And how that can shake a person to their core. We kind of know that, that stuff. Perhaps you felt it. Now, if someone who is in our lives for our childhood can have that much impact on us by showing us favor or by withholding from us favor, how much more so the God who created us in his image and who made us to desire him, who then showers upon his people favor. Do you think that might change your outlook in life? Do you think that might sustain you through whatever you're going through? That's where 
perhaps a lot of you are living right now. You might not use this language, but essentially you're looking for favor. You might call it something else. A hug. A friend. Connection. Community. Acceptance. Support. You might be looking for it in places that typically don't work. Alcohol, drugs, sex, money, career, busyness. You're looking for that feeling of being favored and accepted and loved. If there's anything I think we can take from Joshua or, you know, the whole Bible, you need to find it in your God. And you don't have to earn it. It's there waiting for you. You need to receive it. And some of you are not receiving it. Some of you need to receive and accept the things that God says about you. One of the most simple ways of doing this is just reading passages in the Bible about God's favor and his love and his kindness towards you reading them over and over and over. I actually have one, a screenshot on my phone for that particular reason. For those times when I I suffer in my identity, when I fail, and that failure starts to define me, or when people and what they think about me starts to define me and either elevate me or tear me down, the, the, almost too, the, the almost too easy way that people's words can make or break me. And I begin to center my life and orchestrate my life around pleasing people and around success. I turn on my phone, which is its one redemptive factor, and I see the word of God in First John Chapter 4, verse 10, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And for me, I, I, I have to read it over and over. Because deep down, even though I'm like a professional pastor, at least that's what they tell me, I struggle with love, with receiving it. And I work for it. And I'm constantly having to remind myself, God doesn't love me because of how successful I am in my job or my family or any of these variety of things. That's not love at all. Real love is that God loved me first. And I keep reading that and I keep reading that. Surprising things can happen when you begin to read the Bible. When you begin to read things that God said first. Specifically, because the Bible is pretty big and you might find yourself in a particular area of the Bible that doesn't lend itself to, to this thing, finding specific passages that are about God's favor. And just begin to read them and meditate on them. Perhaps you don't know what any of them are. I'll just give you some. Read all of Ephesians chapter 1. Read all of Romans chapter 5. Hope you're writing this down. Read all of Colossians chapter 3. Read Philippians chapter 4. Read Matthew chapter 6. Read John chapter 17. Read Psalm anything. Psalm 23, Psalm 27, Psalm 55, Psalm 86, Psalm 91, Psalm 121, Psalm 145. These are all great passages about God's favor. I don't have time to read all of those chapters to you right now. I'll just give you a verse from each of them. How's that? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. These are all out of the NLT because I want you to hear this as a conversation from God to you. 
All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us. God decided in advance to adopt you. You hear this stuff? God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. God wants you in his family. And it brings him great pleasure. Romans 5, verse 5. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Colossians 3, verse 2 through 3. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. (laughs) For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Philippians 4, verse 19. And this same God who takes care of me will also supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. You may say, well, it doesn't feel like he's supplying my needs. I only have 10 pairs of shoes. Well, Matthew 6, verse 28 through 30. Why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing And yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as a common tulip. A Gerbera daisy. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? John 17 verse 9. Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for you. God prays for you. You just think about the mechanics of that. God is praying to who? To God. God is praying to himself for you. Well, what does he say? My prayer is not for the world. It's for those you have given me because they belong to you, Father. Can't go wrong with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me besides peaceful streams. He renews my strength. Psalm 27. My heart has heard the Lord say, come and talk with me. My heart has responded, Lord, I'm coming. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Psalm 55. I love Psalm 55. It's actually a big complaint because David in this instance feels betrayed by one of his closest friends. But at the end of this lament, he says in verse 17, morning, noon, and night, I cry out in my distress and the Lord hears my voice. The Lord hears your voice. Psalm 86, verse 13 for your love for me is very great. What if you were to say that every day for a year? How would it change you? Psalm 91. Wish I could quote this whole chapter, but here's verse one. Those who will live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 21, here's verse eight. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now and forever. Psalm 145, verse 8 and 13, the Lord is merciful and compassionate. He's slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord always keeps his promises. These are just single verses taken from whole chapters about God's favor and love and grace towards his people. Imagine the rest that I didn't even get to to mention. Imagine if you were to immerse yourself in those truths. If you were to reshape 
what you think about yourself and what you think about God to match what God thinks about you. In fact, I think that this morning what many of you need to do is to actually sit in that place, to sit in the unmerited favor of God, to just sit in it without striving, without working, without merit, without argument, without justification, without analysis. Sit in it and meditate on how much God loves you today. For some of you, that's really hard. So when you, perhaps, the, you know, on the carpets when we worship and you lay uh, down on your face to worship, which is one of our ways of just being with the Lord to meditate in that way. Maybe even that's hard, uh, hard for you. You sit there and you're hearing these songs and you're just replaying in your mind all of the things that you've done wrong. Or all of the things that you're going to do right. How you're going to be a better Christian next time. You're going to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and be a good Christian. And then God will be justified in his love for you. You're still working for it. Why don't you just sit there and drown in the gracious love of God that is displayed towards you. Don't work for it because you can't. Don't reason why you shouldn't have it because the reasons why you shouldn't have it are endless, actually. Receive it, eat it, drink it, allow it to permeate your heart. For some of you, that's going to be a battle, but it's worth the battle because God's favor changes everything. And God's favor doesn't change. But your choice to receive it or not will. Some of you are believers, you've received the favor of God, and some of you are not. You've said, I want, the good, I want some of the things that God offers, but I reject your kingdom, I reject your rule over my life, and in so doing, you're rejecting his favor. What some of you need to do is to drop down your weapons, repent of your sin, and allow the kindness of God to draw you into his arms. Perhaps you're saying, why so much talk about God's favor? This is so feel-goody. Why should I care so much about God's favor? Why should I meditate on it? Here's two reasons. One, it'll give you the courage to keep going no matter what you're going through. And two, it'll give you the audacity to ask for the impossible. The courage to keep going, the audacity to ask for more which we see in the final throes of Joshua's mission. Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon. And moon, in the valley of Aijalon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord for Israel. I was reading some commentaries on this passage and I just had to shut them because there are so many explanations around this. Well, maybe it was an eclipse. Well, maybe he was just speaking metaphorically. Maybe something happened where two things were going on and the moon and the sun were in the sky at the same time and it doesn't make sense to us, but it's this perception. I don't care what they say. If God can create the sun and the stars, he can do whatever he wants with them. And if our entire faith is built around a man rising from the dead, everything else is easy, man. 
You say, well, how in the world is it possible for the earth to stop on its axis? That would be catastrophic. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) But that's what happened. And I care less about the explanations for this. This is just a miracle, okay? If you believe in God, miracles aren't a giant step in the other direction. It's not the miracle that I find so bizarre. It's the last line that it was because Joshua asked him to do it. Never before has this happened where the Lord listened to the voice of a dude, where the Lord listened to a person who needed a little extra time in the day and said, Son, stand still. And God did it right after, you know, the stones falling from the sky. Winning the battle for him. One of our temptations with stories like this is to glorify these people as saints and to think, gosh, Joshua and Moses and David and Elijah, those were special people. Paul and Peter and James, special people doing special things. The Bible's perception of those people is not the same. The Apostle James would later go on to say about Elijah. You remember the guy who called down fire from heaven? Who was fed by ravens? Who told the rain to stop and it stopped until he told it to start again? James says, Elijah was just a a person like us. What he's meaning there is he's no different from you and I. The difference, James says, he prayed. The perception that we're getting in the Bible is not that there is a super type of person, you know, like a a breed of X-Men in the Bible and the rest of us are just Christians that go to church and sing. The Bible's perception in here is of a glorious, all-powerful God who puts his favor upon broken people, brings them into participation with his kingdom and says, here is all of the resources of heaven for you at your disposal. Ask and you shall receive. You want to call fire down from heaven? Don't do that, but (laughs) metaphorically speaking. Do you want the windows of heaven to come open upon the city of Santa Barbara, on your family, on your marriage, on your children, on your grandchildren, on your cousins, on your nieces, on your singleness, on your enemies? God is waiting. It just seems like he's waiting for people to tap into that. And I pray, you know, we pray. But I feel like 90% of my prayers, I expect for them to happen. They're just safe enough that I can actually voice them in public. God bless me. God saved people somewhere. You know, he probably did it. I think what I need to know today and what you need to know today is that the same Lord who fights for Israel fights for his people today. You may say, how do I know that? I see it written about Joshua. I see it written about Rahab. I see it written about all of these people. How can I know that this same God is working with me and for me and for his kingdom? It's because because of the man Jesus It's because of all of the people whom the Father has favored, his favor was seen most brightly and vividly on Jesus, his beloved son. This Jesus who was born in a manger that would be set in a, 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 just in the middle of nowhere. We're told in Luke chapter 2, Verse 40, that this child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Later, the Holy Spirit would enshroud him, and a voice from heaven would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this son, this God-man, would go on to defeat the powers of sin, death, and darkness, and the devil. And he would rescue rebels, Gibeonites who are deceptive and cunning and rebellious and he would bring them back into his fold. People like you and me. 
And through this man, Jesus, he would give us the promised Holy Spirit through his death and resurrection so that that favor that the Son of God felt from his Father, we could experience too. Do you need a hug today? I can't think of a warmer hug than that. The presence of the Father enshrouding you entirely and God saying to you, I am pleased with you. Paul would go on to say, and this is where I I end, in chapter 2, verse 7, verse 6, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ because of the great love with which he loved us. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All the favor of God belongs to you if you are found in Christ. All you have to do to access that is to give up your rebellion and believe in the Son of God. Some of you haven't. You can do that today. Don't need me. Some of you have. And you need to tap into that favor that belongs to you already. I think the point of Joshua chapter 10 is something like this. When you find yourself in difficult circumstances, God's favor will dare you to ask for the impossible. When you find yourself in difficult circumstances, God's favor will dare you to ask for the impossible. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out this morning. And I want to leave you with a question today. What's that impossible prayer for you? Let's move beyond asking for things that we can probably make happen for ourselves if we wanted to and give God glory. Let's move into the impossible. Now, don't walk out of here and ask God to make the sun stand still. It won't work. I had a specific purpose. But do think, depths of your heart, what is that one thing holding me back? What is that one obstacle? What is that one thing that is gripping me with fear? What is that one thing that there's nothing I can do to get rid of or to change? Ask God for that. Maybe it's a marriage that's on the rocks, that's beyond the realm of redemption. That's your sun and moon. Maybe for some of you, it's a particular situation you're in. Maybe you are uh, just broken up inside and suffering from depression. Maybe you have inner demons. Maybe you have actual demons. Maybe you're physically sick. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's someone in your family who's not getting along with you. There's a list of things. I don't know what they are. I think you know what they are. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me. Let's all just stand up together. As we sing, if you need to sit back down or kneel, however it is that you posture yourself for worship, you can do that. But let's just stand and This posture of prayer, if you would just uh, open up your hands like this, like a kid that's waiting to receive presents from their, their, their parents. Because that's what we're doing right now. And I want you to think of what that impossible prayer is. And as we worship today, I want you to begin to ask God for it. And I want to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that the favor of God would be felt in a transforming way in this building. For those who are broken inside, for those who are lost, confused, I pray that the loving embrace of God would change everything. I don't just want to pray for favor, I want to pray for faith. 
that as people are woken up by the, the loving kindness and favor of God, they would then be able to see in you a powerful God who can move mountains, stop rivers, end enemies, break down walls, stop the sun in its tracks. And I pray that our faith right now would be kindled to ask you for great and mighty things. I pray that the church of Jesus Christ in the city of Santa Barbara would be filled with life-changing, landscape-altering, world-changing prayers. I pray that our prayers would be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. I pray that our prayers would crush spiritual chains and bondage. I pray that our prayers would change things. And I pray that our prayers would start right here with us. May you change us and give us a bigger view of who you are. And lastly, I want to pray for courage. Give us the courage that comes from people who know who their God is. And as we sing to you, Lord, may all of these things just be crystallized in our life. And may the impossible be made possible. For all things are possible to him who believes in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.